right, testing, one, two, three for volume. Testing, one, two, three. Liz, can you say testing, one, two, three? Testing, one, two, three. Okay, that's good. Okay, Liz, so I have to open this thing that I've got from work, mm. which is... Uh, A box. That has got um, critical products written on it. So let's open it up and see what's inside. What can you see? Paper. Paper? In yep. a bag. And a big sign that says, Stop before you begin your stool collection. More is not better. Two exclamation marks. Ew. Do you know what a stool sample is? A poo sample? It's a poo sample. Collection requirements? The different types of poo. There are different types of poo pictured on this gut health questionnaire form. Which I'm going to have to fill out. It looks like a urine test. It does look like a urine test, except it's not urine. What's it for? Poo. Yeah, there's some liquid inside the bottle. Do not overfill your collection tubes. Note that there is a line, a fill line in the tube. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a small amounts of specimen at a time to be sure that the total contents do not go above that line. I think that's the line. Oh, that's a lot of poo. Now I think. Um... Oh, you're right. Alright. <laughs> yeah, so are you able to hold that while I do the poo? No. <laughs> Alright, well I'll get off and do the business. What do you want me to do? Just wait there. <laughs> what on earth is going on there? This poor child is wrangled into these poo samples. Well, yes, I had to do do a poo for work. <laughs> It's not in my job description, mm. but... Um, Paid to poo. Paid to poo. I do it anyway, for <laughs> the love of it. No. So this week on Consume This, we're looking at kind of the changing nature of our interactions with the medical industry, healthcare, and in particular, the rise of do-it-yourself medical stuff. So mm. things like home health tests from companies like iScreen... There's a company called Lifery and uh, Primera Health is another one. These companies all produce tests that you can do at home and they're increasingly available in chemists and wellness stores across the country. And it's not just for the microbiome, which is microbiome, sorry, which is the test that I did, mm, but it's for all kinds of things. As part of this episode, we conducted a national survey, a nationally representative survey to discover how many of you out there in New Zealand are using these types of tests. So Sophie... What do you think? What's the number? How many people out of, let's say, 10 are using these tests? Oh, well, oh, that's interesting that you said it was out of 10 because my initial feeling was not that many because they're quite expensive. What, like just 10 people? No, like out what, like one in 100 is what I was like imagining. Well, just in terms of maths, you're right. Oh, oh one in 100? Yeah. No, in terms of maths, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's one in 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> one in 10. So... of us are using these tests on a regular basis. Great. I mean, that is actually much more than I thought. Yeah, because your test alone costs like $300, which is quite expensive. Yeah, it's not cheap. And I spent that money as a healthy person. You're listening to Consume This with me, John Duffy, and my co-host, Sophie. Hello. This is the fourth and final installment of our health mini-series, We've covered drug testing, vaping, and natural health products. And in this episode, 
Well, you might have guessed it from the intro. Maybe. We're looking to the future and investigating how access to healthcare is evolving. We'll get into the DIY, like our poo spearman. And by the way, I haven't seen the test results yet, but I'm informed we have them. So, fingers crossed, I am all good and healthy. But first, Soph. Yes. This may seem like a bit of a tangent, so just bear with me. Okay. I want to talk about geography. Yes, it does seem like a tangent from poo. Yeah. <laughs> you know this. I know this. We hear about it all the time in the media, but I'm going to reiterate it. We're a large country with a small distributed population. There's about 19 of you out there per square kilometre. Now, that doesn't actually mean terribly much to me. So to give you a bit of context, the global average is about 60 people per square kilometre. Wow. And there are tons of upsides to this. You know, us past population, beautiful native bush, amazing empty beaches, great air quality. Clean green New Zealand. Yep, so on and so forth, uh, whether you buy into that image or not. But there are also some drawbacks. And one of the big ones, as we've seen recently, is our infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And there are times when we, as a country, well, we struggle to provide our communities with the resources that they deserve. It's difficult and expensive to provide the necessary but niche services to small dispersed populations. And that also applies to healthcare. Mm. And there has been a, a massive debate about this, um, particularly with the um, health reforms that have, have taken place over the, over the last few years, mm. which is why I want to introduce you to someone who's helping us rethink some of these physical barriers, Dr. Ruth Large. So my main areas of interest is in access to healthcare, particularly rural and remote access to healthcare. That's kind of uh, where my initial interest lay. I think we've had this tendency, particularly within a paternalistic medical system, to think of the medical professional's time as being far more valuable than the person who's actually at the other end. So we've sort of accepted that people will travel long distances or uh, you know, take a whole day off work in order to do that, re rearrange their family circumstances, whatever that may mean. That swung now to certainly being a lot more considerate. And what Dr. Large means here is the system is slowly becoming more considerate of your time as a patient, not just your doctors. Amongst her many, many other roles, Dr. Large is the Chief Clinical Officer of Whakarongoro Aotearoa. That's the organisation that runs Healthline. She also chairs the NZ Telehealth Forum. So telehealth is the use of digital technology to assist a patient when the provider and the recipient are separated by time and or distance. Even before becoming the chair, she's been a key part of the forum for over a decade. As time's gone on, I've recognised that Actually, access to healthcare can be just as difficult if you're in the city, um, whether that's because of your work circumstances or whether that's because you've got a disability that makes it difficult to get around or because you have difficulty getting access to transport or it's too expensive. Yeah, I think that's quite true. Um, I mean, I live in a major city. I have access to public transport and I don't have a disability and I still find it difficult sometimes to get the, to the doctor in the hours that they provide so I can only imagine it be even more difficult for people who have those barriers and sometimes there are several of them. Absolutely. 
if you think of the oncology patient, you know, or somebody with a chronic terminal illness, every day is valuable. And if you're going to spend a full day trying to get to a healthcare access appointment, that can make you incredibly tired and it can take a day out of your life that you would much rather be doing something else. So I think just thinking, you know, thinking in those terms makes a difference. And the NZ Telehealth Forum have essentially spent those last 10 years thinking in exactly those terms. So they've been busily coming up with strategies to make access to healthcare easier for us. And of course, this has also been facilitated by significant advances in medical technology. Yeah, that's right. Over that time, you know, I've got a, I carry an ultrasound in my pocket now. I've got a digital stethoscope. You know, all of these things that, that, that just weren't even in our vision 10 years ago. So in response to the possibilities opened up by these technological developments, the Telehealth Forum has created the PACE model. And that's an acronym for, Sophie, any ideas? I don't know, but I did, I thought it was to do with children because I'd heard of the one where it's like playfulness, acceptance, curiosity and empathy, which is I don't think is applying. <laughs> it seems slightly out of context. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's patient anywhere, clinician elsewhere. Well, that and sounds so, good. Yeah. Um, The basic premise of PACE is that you should be able to easily and remotely access high-quality care wherever you are in the country. The concept in its entirety, I guess, is is almost completely brand new. It stems from a white paper the Telehealth Forum published around 12 months ago, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes for you as well. Great. I'll read that later. So, yeah, it could be as simple as having a video call with your doctor rather than driving into town. Or it could also be as complicated as being hooked up to medical instruments by a nurse in a small regional primary care facility with all your results being transmitted in real time and assessed by a specialist in a totally different part of the country. Wow. And I presume also internationally. Yeah. Well, why not? Mm. Theoretically. (laughs) And that's where the technology comes in. So the technology is the enabler. It's not the be-all and end-all. Um, some conversations are actually fine by the phone. Others, you really need video. Others, you might need extra pieces. So, you know, a digital stethoscope, uh, the ultrasound that we've talked about, what we call remote patient monitoring. So devices that might look at the uh, rhythm of the heart or give how much oxygen's in the lungs, all of those sort of things which we can now sort of plug in. You know, and some of this happens already. So, you know, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. There's lots of really great examples in New Zealand and overseas of us doing this. It's just that it's been in relative silos and isolated to particular specialties in particular areas. Another great example of this is the National Poison Centre. So if you think you've been poisoned, you can call 0800 POISON for help. It's simple, quick and easy to access. Good to know. Now, those amazing doctors and nurses and and pharmacists are in Dunedin, but anybody in the country can get access to those people. So we're really doing that by by phone, which is absolutely fine, generally speaking, for poisons. But then we've also got things like, you know, renal dialysis units in in Northland who are supported by Whangarei. We've got areas in the Waikato, which are also supported by telehealth services. And that's really what the PACE model comes down to. It's not about reinventing healthcare or replacing in-person access. It's about providing us with alternative options. Options that better suit our needs and improve the availability and quality of care. And crucially, joining all those services up so you can be referred between them. Because if you think you've been poisoned, your best option probably isn't to wait a few weeks for an appointment at your GP. Yeah, no. You go straight to the emergency room. Or call the 800 number, one or the other. Yeah. So 
Technology has rapidly improved over the past decade, and that's been a big enabler of the PACE model. But our push into telehealth has also been enabled by something a bit less obvious. A big structural change in the health system, the scrapping of district health boards. Previously, we've had operated in silos. So every district health board has had their own group of, of people they looked after, for example. So, you know, we know that the postcode lottery is real. You know, if you live in Auckland, your care is very different from if you live on the top of the Coromandel. Some of that's got to do with distance. Some of that's actually just got to do with the fact that your district health board is different and you have different things in place. But what that also meant is that you couldn't necessarily access those people with that particular special interest because you're in a different health board area. So with Te Whata Ora now dissolving those district health boards, that then means that every patient theoretically should be able to access any specialty service no matter where they are. And even more to the point, every clinical person employed by Te Whata Ora theoretically has a responsibility to every New Zealander. And that's quite different from what we've had before, because before it's just been a responsibility to the people in your boundary. Yeah, so previously, individual health boards had their own pots of money and no real incentive to make their facilities and staff available outside of their own region. This is no longer the case. Due to the new national approach, if the best doctor for your medical issue is in, say, I don't know, Dunedin, you should be able to speak to them, even if you live in Matapori. And under a PACE telehealth concept, that could be remotely, at a time that's convenient, with no need to take time off work or spend money on travel. And as well as the potential benefits the concept could realise for patients, they also see PACE as making life easier for primary healthcare workers by providing them with better access to support. I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it must be for many of our rural GPs at the moment sitting in a, in a rural general practice thinking, gosh, who's, who am I going to hand my patients over to? But whilst Ruth and the Telehealth Forum are confident about the benefits of PACE, there are still a lot of things that need to happen to make it a reality. Hmm. In theory, this all sounds great and I'm on board. I guess we're experiencing this all for the first time, so the proof will be in the pudding. Certainly will be. Oh, look, we're in election year, right? Anything could happen. It needs some decision-making, a definitive, yes, this is a pathway we're going to go. And I think we can see that within Te Whata Ora's general principles, but it's the how-to. The enablement part starts with data and digital team um, and a plan, particularly within booking appointments. Uh, it sounds simple, right? But actually it isn't. Booking is quite complex. So booking tools are probably one of the first things. Being able to access a, a medical record wherever you are is the next key thing, so those are enablers. And whilst those pathways are being pulled together, then we need to be looking at what does this mean for all of our clinicians up and down the country? How do we start making sure they're trained in delivering telehealth? It kind of sounds simple, but there's a lot of complexity behind it. You know, something like this, you're probably looking at, at about a five-year horizon. That doesn't mean that you can't start delivering stuff already, because like I say, we already are. It's stitching it all together, and the majority of that like I say, actually really just needs that key decision to go, this is, this is where we're going. So, really interesting. What do you think, Soph? 
I can see the benefits. I think the for rural communities and those who are less mobile, being able to access medical help um, when it's convenient to them is just super beneficial because we know that lots of people put off going to the GP or going to the doctor about things that are treatable, but they put it off for too long and then things become a big problem. But then also I think personally... While I can see the benefits, I do like the relationship I have with my GP and I feel a connection with them and I feel like because they see me more regularly, they sort of get to know you as a person and know what you're like and so what's normal for you, I personally would prefer to keep doing that and which is what I've done rather than access free GP services but they're tally ones through my health insurance I'd rather pay to go and see the same person that I see all the time. Mm. Yes. I, the, my takeaway was that, you know, if there are ways of making primary health more efficient mm. so that I'm particularly thinking of the GP model here, particularly if GPs have more time to spend with each patient because many of the models that we have in primary health care are just based on funding as many people to get through that that yeah, gp clinic as, as is yeah. po- possible and uh, you know you must i have to feel for the gps because oh yeah you know 15 minutes it's not it's a lot not of time. a lot of time to diagnose what could be a quite a complex series of issues that a particular patient might have yeah yeah it's it's a tough gig mm. anyway we digress mm. so to get our digression under control On this episode of Consume This, we're looking at how the way we access healthcare is evolving. As we've heard, the medical system is slowly adapting to take advantage of new technologies, and so are businesses. Which is why at the start of this episode, you heard John preparing to poo in a pot. DIY home health test kits, which you can buy online and in wellness stores, are becoming increasingly popular. A quick scroll through just one website has tests for things like hormone imbalance, heart health and diabetes. And with prices ranging from $50 to $700, those come at significant cost. But that doesn't seem to have stopped us from using them. As we mentioned at the start of the episode, 1 in 10 of you reported buying one. The most common were cholesterol, allergy and microbiome tests. So, John... You've been testing this out for us. What on earth is a microbiome test? Why were you pooing in jars? Well, those are all really good and relevant questions, Sophie. (laughs) Um, So the microbiome test involves pooing in a jar because that's how they test what the contents of your microbiome is. What is your microbiome is is probably a natural question to flow from that. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, I'm not 100% sure. There was a lot of detail in the test and in the questionnaire that I had to fill in prior to the test. But basically, it's all the kind of bacteria and things in your gut that help you digest your food and process stuff and right, yeah, break stuff down and all that kind of stuff. That's my understanding of it. Okay. Um, so we left you where you were heading off to the loo. Do you just have to poo in the pot? I mean, it sounded like there were fill lines, which is quite difficult with a poo. It's not like a, a pee. You just kind of like shut yeah, it off. Yeah, it's not like you tell your body, right, I need exactly 600 milliliters of poo yeah. to fill this <laughs> appropriate vessel. No, uh, so what, I, what did I, do you, uh, you want the nitty gritty, do you? you want the actual detail yeah, yeah, of yeah. How, it, how it happened? Yeah, uh, skip um, forward to, you know, 30 seconds in the episode if you don't well, want to you listen know, to this. 
the interesting thing was that particular morning i got up and i was like don't need to go <laughs> so i had to have quite a large breakfast because it was very specific about what days of the week i had oh. to do it on a sunday or a monday morning it okay. was frustrating Why? because tom our producer had been on me about getting this podcast done and you know me getting the test done and mm. getting it off to the lab getting the test so i can get the results back and take it all from there i was like i'll do it i'll do it i'll do it I'll do it and then then i reread the instructions like oh bro i've got to wait a whole another five days <laughs> <laughs> which just poor old tom long-suffering tom anyway i actually chatted to my wife who's in the medical profession i was like how do you advise people when you need a poo sample from them and she's like make a nest oh like, what does that mean basically you block the toilet up with toilet paper. Right. Poo on said toilet paper, scoop poo into specimen jar. <gasps> Wait, did it come with a scooper? Did you have to did. use a scooper? No, oh, okay, so the, the top of one of the jars. <sighs> I've been to your place scoop. for dinner. I was worried I was going to have to, like, you know, bring my own coloring. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, made the nest, did the poo, scooped the poo, put it in the jar. Sent the jar to Hawke's Bay. Oh. Got uh, an email back from the lab saying, um, we're missing a sample. <laughs> Did you the, do enough poo? Yeah, reread the instructions in that other specimen jar. They wanted me to fill that too, and I didn't do it. So oh, uh, they sent me a new kit. Did it properly. And, um, yeah, off they went. And I think we've got the results back. You've, yeah. you've seen the results. I have not seen the results. So yeah. I'm really, really interested to find out whether... There's something lurking in my microbiome that shouldn't be. Mm. Well, we will find out. Although I will or just say how excellent my microbiome is. Well, I'm, that's, that's I'm quietly true. confident that it's going to be excellent. Okay. And I'd have no basis for that confidence whatsoever. Yeah, it's just classic white man confidence, really. Exactly. Um, Everything else has worked out, so why shouldn't this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, let's look at these results, John. Uh, we've got the homepage here, and it says, hi, healthy. I presume that's not a comment on whether we, you are healthy or we not. We used an alias. My, my alias for this particular test was Healthy Gutman. Oh, well, there you go. You were also presuming that you were healthy. It says initially that there are 34 desirable things in your poop, and by the looks of things, three abnormal things. So <sighs> let's... Uh, and that's in red, too. It's in red, It yeah. could mean abnormal as in, like, abnormally excellent. Sure, let's find out. It gives you an overview sort of page at the start there. Still colour, brown. I love that. That's good. <laughs> there was no mucus and no blood, which is also good, I think. Yeah. 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 That would be alarming. So the overview, looking good so far. Cool. And then we get into beneficial bacteria, mm. which it does say here that you're inadequate. Which Yeah, I think that's an unfortunate yeah. use of words. <laughs> It um, says your bifidobacteria is, I'm not sure what this rating scale exactly means because it's not particularly clear. It's like green, good, red, bad is so essentially. It's inadequate. So, uh, bifidobacteria are considered friendly bacteria that are found in fermented foods like yogurt and cheese. Also inadequate are lactobacilli. The other bacteria, also, they look normal for you. So good. that's good. I actually got a two on E. coli, didn't I? That's good. Yeah. Which, I mean, poo does generally contain E. coli, so that's... So this looks interesting. So no Campylobacter, no Salmonella. I recognise some of these names. Mm. Parasites. Um, oh, dear. You've got one parasite. Mm. It's a 
Dientamoeba fragilis, which is a bacteria that can be present in the gut for months or years and can be misdiagnosed as IBS. That doesn't sound good. IBS, that's irritable bowel syndrome, isn't it? Yeah. Ooh. Have you been having... No, infection can cause diarrhea, abdominal pain, cramping. I've had none of those. Oh, they've got some recommendations down the bottom here for you, John. Um, Says you should consider clinical nutrition. I'm not really sure what that means. You should optimize your beneficial bacteria, so maybe eat some more yogurt, and then it should you should manage potential pathogens. You could say that about anything. Manage potential, I don't know, electrocutions. <laughs> don't put your finger in the socket. That's a really yeah, random nut. statement. <laughs> manage potential things falling on your head randomly from buildings. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. To be honest, it's vaguely interesting, I guess, but I'm not really sure if it tells us anything. How do you feel? It's really nicely presented. Mm, like sure. Soft, yeah. really kind of soothing colours. But yes. I come away with questions like, there's a parasite in me. Am I going to die? And it's not telling me no. whether I am yeah. or not. So that's about the best that we can do as lay people to try and understand these results. It's probably a good idea for us to get in touch with someone with a bit more expertise than me and Soph. He's a trustee of the Gut Foundation. Academic head at Otago University School of Medicine, medical director of the New Zealand Nutrition Foundation, and some other stuff. This this dude is eminently qualified to diagnose uh, my microbiome. And just an apology about the quality of the phone connection on this call to Dr. Richard Geary in Dunedin. It's not the best, but bear with us. Hi, Richard. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Sophie and I have just been going through my microbiome results, and I understand that you've had a bit of a chance to have a look at them offline. And we're really keen just to get your first impressions of the results. Um, We know nothing and have just been trying to figure them all out, but um, it'd be great to get your kind of professional insight on them. Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing is that we've produced predominantly a healthy poo so congratulations uh, i hope um, you're listening mum i hope you're listening <laughs> i told you i'd amount to something um so so that's that's the first thing the second thing is that you know there's no blood there and you know blood in your bowel motion that's a big deal so that's reassuring it doesn't mean there's zero chance of a problem but you otherwise well so there's no reason to think that so that's a good thing to know a lot of that you might have seen yourself without needing to send it to the lab but nonetheless <laughs> it's good that they can make that sort of description and and when we drill down to the microbiome, so these are the trillions of bacteria and viruses and pathogens and, and, and parasites that live inside us, that's really where the interest is, certainly from a, from a research point of view, from, from my, my perspective, but also increasingly from a, a general population point of view. So one of the things we saw for you was that some of your concentrations of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria were slightly low. Mm-hmm. These are probiotics, and probiotics by definition are bacteria that do something beneficial for us. So they might improve our immune system or help us to digest food or do things like that. And certainly bifidobacteria, lactobacilli are known to be beneficial like that. And and that's of interest. But the problem that we have with this sort of result is that it's really just a snapshot in time. And we know that what you eat on a certain day may change the concentrations of these bacteria. And we also know that just because it says that your bacteria are low, doesn't mean that that necessarily increases your risk of something bad happening. You know, it's just one point in time, and mm-hmm. we know that some of the 
changes that we see occurring with bacteria in people who have got diseases aren't necessarily a causation, they're just an association. And we all know if two things happen at the same time, they may be linked, but they may not be as well. Yeah. That's really, I think, one of the issues we have with this sort of information. Are they actually useful? Like, is it useful paying $300 for this sort of test? I personally believe that it's not useful. Uh, and the reason I say that is that at the moment we're doing research using similar sorts of panels, but with much more complicated information. And I believe that science has overtaken our ability to understand what's going on. We don't really know what it means. We know that for some diseases, there may be increases or decreases in certain types of bacteria, but we don't believe that having those increases or decreases actually causes the disease. It may be a result of the disease. Mm. So, so therefore, when we try and interpret it in this way where someone says, here is your microbiome, this is high, this is low, I don't believe we have any evidence to say that there is a, an intervention that someone should undertake to change their microbiome in a certain way. I believe what we're better to do is to live a healthy lifestyle and then that should lead to a healthy microbiome as a byproduct of that. Now, I do believe in the future that we will have the ability to modulate our microbiome and potentially increase or decrease our risk of various diseases. But right now, we've got mm-hmm. the ability to measure our microbiome We've got the ability to know what's there, what's high, what's low, but we don't have the ability to understand whether there's a causative effect between what we see in that vast array of bacteria and a potential disease that may or may not occur. Mm. Um, so I have patients who bring me these uh, and they say to me, what do you think? And I think, well, this is very interesting, but I'm not sure that I can necessarily make a health recommendation on the basis of it because I, I don't know there's a cause and effect here. All I can Mm. say is that it's best to have a healthy diet, which is full of fruit and vegetables and everything else that we know is healthy for you. And through Mm -hmm. doing that, that should lead to a beneficial microbiome. That the labs are ahead of the game here, that they're in a position where they can provide this information. But it does worry me that it does prey slightly on people's vulnerabilities. Uh, And whenever you see something written down that you think you feel deficient in, I hope, John, that you're you're okay here, that you're feeling okay about yourself just because you're a little bit like a bacteria. So it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or anything else is going on. <laughs> but you can see, you, you can see, you can see how. No, he's a bad person for other reasons, sort of, Richard. <laughs> well, well, there is I'm still, like, I'm still processing it. Actually, it's kind of <laughs> quite a shock. But, but, quite a shock. But, but, you, you, but, but you could, you could see how, in the wrong hands, people could go down mammoth rabbit holes, mm. which they'll never mm. get out of, and and it takes a lot of time and effort to pull that back. So I, I am worried about this, uh, but equally, you know. Companies are perfectly able to offer what they offer, but if we go down further, uh, lower down, there's information about parasites, for example, Giardia, uh, Dianpami, Entamoeba, uh, etc. Well, here's some here. Here's, here's some pathogens. We can stop uh, stop here. But yeah, Campylobacter, Salmonella, Shigella. If you had those, it's important to know about it. However, I'd also say that if you've got one of those, you're having profuse watery diarrhea with gastroenteritis if you mm. can't or Shigella. I think you know so about it anyway. It's sort of interesting, but, <laughs> but, 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 the, but the relevance in this situation is a little bit difficult to, to know about. Mm. If you go down a little bit further here, um, uh, the parasites, okay, so just there. So um, blastocystis hominis and diatomoeba fragilis are both parasites, and you're lucky enough to have a wee friend there, dying to move fragilis. And these are mm. p- parasites which can live with us and cause no problems, but they can also cause problems. So the information on whether you should treat someone with blastocystis or dying to move is quite varied. Do you worry that I've now got a parasite and I need to 
have mm. uh, have eradication therapy when in fact that's quite complicated antibiotic therapy which in its own right could cause side effects and problems and if you never knew about this you'd never worry about it and therefore it wouldn't become a problem so it's sort of a there are, there are issues reporting these things when we don't completely understand what the relevance is in an individual whether it needs to be treated or not mm. I just wanted to know, Richard, how you feel about the whole industry, not just necessarily with the this test that John's ordered, but the sort of DIY test industry generally. Like, should we just go to our GP? Because it would surely be cheaper than the $300 that John's forked out. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we're at the edge of knowledge, and I think that there are always people that are early adopters, people who want to push the boundaries and see what's going on. It comes down a little bit to what you do with that information, and mm-hmm. uh, and it worries me a little bit that the providers of these services probably don't really have to deal with that. They can provide the information, but then thereafter, the default will always be, well, uh, you need to go to your doctor, or you can pay for us to see a dietitian through our service. Or so that, that's what really worries me mm-hmm. is that they then load a lot of information. So if I was a general practitioner, I saw this, I'd be, I'd be. This is what I do So, as, as a researcher as well as a clinician. So I feel as though I'm able to manage this quite well. But it would be like me trying to look at an EEG of a brain as a gastroenterologist, so I, I wouldn't know where to start. And, and it's that relevance and that background and perspective that I think is more worrying. And this is where we're sort of in this grey zone where we have the ability to generate data, but we don't have the ability to understand the data. Mm. Uh, and, and that's where patients can be left, I believe, in a bit of a grey zone. In fact, these aren't often patients that are worried well. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're people mm-hmm. who, who otherwise um, want to optimise their health and do the best that they possibly can. But I don't think there's a lot there that I would action or do myself. I think it's really interesting. Uh, yeah, would I like to know what my microbiome is like? Sure, I would, but I wouldn't do anything about it probably because I know that for my health, what I need to do is have a healthy diet and lead a healthy lifestyle and do those things, and I'll choose to do that or not. But I don't think this would drive me to do that one way or another because I don't think that the information there is strong enough to say that that's what I need to do. So really interesting, fascinating. There will be a time when this information will take us a lot further and give us a much deeper insight into our health, but I personally believe that that time has not yet, has not yet arrived. As they would say in the States, it's not ready for prime time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Fascinating. Yeah. Who knew there was so much to learn from Pooh? Yeah. Well, Richard, look, thank you so much for generously offering up your time this evening. Um, it's been a pleasure to come along. And as I say, uh, people just need to think about not just the benefit of the test, but the cost and what they might do with the results. So thanks once again. Great. Well, John, I think that leads us straight into what on earth are you going to do about your test results? This has been a fascinating journey. And I have to say, if I wasn't in the privileged position of having gone through this experiment and just had my results assessed by what appears to be the most qualified person in New Zealand to assess <laughs> those results, I think I might be a little bit worried about the fact that there's a parasite in me. Maybe I would have bought further tests or gone to the GP and the GP might have gone, well, oh, I don't know, because this is outside my area of expertise, so you need to go to a specialist and cha-ching, 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 you know, the dollars are racking up. So... Mm. I could see how someone would get into a spiral mm. with these home tests because you don't have, no, you know, only medical professionals really have the expertise to interpret these results. Yeah. The businesses themselves can only really give you high level general advice 
mm. which can obviously lead to more questions uh, than it answers. So I, I guess that's problematic. However, had this turned out something that was really alarming, there could have been real cause for me to go and get checked out by my GP. So there's good and bad in this, I think. Mm. I mean, your test was paid for by consumer. So would you pay the $300 yourself? It is unlikely. No. Yeah. So I think what occurs to me as we kind of tie all this together is that there's heaps going on in our health sector mm. and technologies enabling some really cool things. Although, boy, oh boy, is there a huge amount of work still to do to actually realize the benefits from the PACE model and, and, and the interventions that are being made to make it easier for us to access healthcare. But that's not to say that this thing might not evolve into you know, our new way of interfacing with the with the health system, we just don't know yet. It's too early. Great. Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ. It was hosted by me, John Duffy, and Sophie Richardson. It also featured a cameo from Lucy at the start. Hey, Luce. The survey we referenced in this episode was conducted and analysed by our colleague and data legend Scott Moore. If you want to know more about the Gut Foundation or the NZ Telehealth Forum, check out the links in the show notes. This episode is the final instalment of our health mini-series. Our thanks go out to everyone who's taken the time to speak with us throughout the series. This episode, and indeed the entire series, was produced by Tom Rith-Smith and made possible with generous support from the Ministry of Health. We'll be back very, very soon with some more non-health related stories for you. Matiwa.